he's going to say here, I've got a problem with God. Ecclesiastes 4, 1 to 3. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Now, leave that up. This is a guy you just don't want at your party, right? Now, he has partied like nobody's business up until this point. We, we keep saying each week he has lived a life of extreme excess. And yet here he is, and he's just, he's the guy that, you know, like the, the Debbie Downer, negative Nelly in the corner at the party. You walk up and go, hey, man, what's up? And he's like, man, you know. Had a root canal a few days ago, and the climate change is getting the best of me, and I really don't want to be at this party, right? It's that type of person. It's just severely depressed. Now, the preacher, the prophet, the philosopher is using what you and I are very aware of. Um, he's using hyperbole. He, he's not being literal. He's not saying uh, abortion is good or commit suicide. You see the philosophical musings of those who are alive, they shouldn't be living, and those who aren't born yet shouldn't even be born. He's using hyperbole, but you do that, don't you? When you're really angry and you're really frustrated, you're, you're, you and your wife or your spouse are remodeling the kitchen at home, and things aren't going uh, your way, you're over budget and behind schedule, and you begin to think, whether you say it or not, you begin to think, this whole thing's a big mistake, remodeling this kitchen. In fact, this marriage is a big mistake. My life, your life is a big mistake, right? You, you ever, do you live in, with anybody like that? There's just, that happens within us. Most of the time, thank God, I don't say those things, but oftentimes shouldn't confess it in front of the whole church. I think those things sometimes, don't you? No, just me, okay, great. You left me out here all alone. But it, hyperbole, and so I want you to understand that. This is not, an, obviously he's not advocating for abortion or suicide, but he's saying, man, it hurts when you see what? When you see the oppression. And in just a couple of verses, he uses this word in three different tenses. He says uh, the oppression. He uses the word all. He talks about those who are oppressed and he uses the reality of tears. And then he talks about the oppressors. He says they bring no comfort. The oppressors are the people that are in power. They bring no, they bring no comfort. And there's a reality we, we talk a lot about it a lot here at Fondren, and we need to, and we're grateful for our younger constituency in our church who are, I've said many times over, the conscience of our church, who are helping us see the gospel through the lens of all the need in this global world that we live in. But there is persecution. There is racism. There is poverty. And this week I was doing a, a, what I find to be a fascinating read on the subject of poverty uh, in Scripture. And in the Old Testament, we're just looking at, I just had time to study that part of the book, but in the Old Testament, it talks about the poor in different categories. Now, you've got to study this to see it, but it talks about the lazy poor 13 times in the Old Testament, mostly in Proverbs. It talks about low-income laborers 22 times. It talks about peasant farmers 48 times. It talks about beggars 61 times. And listen to this. It talks about the politically exploited poor 88 times in the Old Testament. How about that? I think Solomon would say that when we, we get fueled by our optimism and maybe we sit in judgment, 
Have you noticed that when it comes to others' mistakes and misfortunes, we're really good judges, but when it comes to our own, we're good lawyers? And the scripture, I, I tell you, I've been there, I know it. I'm not talking political affiliation here. I'm not trying to puncture that in anybody or sway you one way or the other. But when we fold our arms and we say, I know those children are in bad shape, but they're not mine. Or I know that person is poor, but look what it says in Proverbs, right? We go to one of those 13 passages, don't we? Now, maybe that is applicable. But if you do the math as I have done, did you hear those numbers? 88 times we see the politically exploited. Something could be done. I was reading this week from Newsweek magazine about a mom, a single mom in Alabama. She works as a nursing assistant at a nursing home for $700 a week. She gets a ride every morning. She works a long shift. She tends to the bedridden. She cleans bedpans. She mops floors and clean surfaces, and does a lot of things that you and I probably wouldn't sign up for. And some of us even pay others to do for us. And she does those things, and someone, someone picks her up every day to work, like I said, and when they don't show up, she's got no heater, no phone. And when someone doesn't show up, that someone to pick her up, she walks. She said, it's better to walk and be at work than to call in sick and maybe lose my job. And the residents of that nursing home talks about her work ethic and the joy and the smiles that she puts on the faces of other people as she works. Three children at home. Now, I read that and I think, man, it motivates me. There's something in there that that convicts me. It, It compels me to think about my life afresh and maybe what I'm complaining about. And what I'm grateful for. And who I'm helping. And what the, the, the trajectory of my life is, my own life and our family and this church family as I provide leadership here. There's a Latin phrase, we'll put it up, when it comes to people being oppressed. It's this, and this phrase simply means this. Next slide. To free the oppressed. When Jesus came, the first sermon that he preached is recorded for us in one narrative of the gospel in Luke chapter 4 and he's quoting Isaiah 61 and he's saying I've come to set the captives captives free Jay and our worship team started you off started us off by singing about the freedom that God gives and the call is for us to free the oppressed the the gospel narrative as as it unfurls is for us to to be knit together and to live in such a way. Now, here's Solomon in Ecclesiastes 4, and he says what? I've got a problem with God. No, don't raise your hand. You probably wouldn't if the answer is affirmative. But do you ever look at the world and have a problem with God? Here comes heresy for some of you, but I think we should. I think we should. I I think the answer is not to turn away or to deny or minimize or to capture ourselves in our own comfort, but to look and with a sense of, God, where are you and who are you? Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 4, I've not only got a problem with God, I look and I survey and I see man. 
and I see that everybody is broken. Look at verses four to six. What does he say? Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Leave that verse up if you would and circle the word envy. Now you didn't buy that car because you needed a car to ride in. You bought that car because you wanted people to see you in that car. It, it can be madness, but that, that 2 to $4, sometimes $5 cup of coffee that we buy in the green and white cup, man, it's just a way for us to say, we're cool, we get it, we're inside, we can, we can do this. You work out at the gym almost every day, not so that you can be fit, but so that you can't wait to get to the pool and be seen. You are chiseled and cut. And you want to be seen. You don't even have to go to the pool. There's media outlets, social media outlets for you to show off. There is something about us. Solomon is saying, I see, I've got this problem with, with the world and all the oppression, the racism, the, the prejudice, the pride, the poverty of it all. And then I look over at man and I see that pretty much everything we do is motivated by envy. Now there are Three choices that the philosopher gives us. The first is in verse 5. It's the folding of the hands. It's, it's apathy. It's just saying, forget about it. And some of us do that. We say, I can't understand it all. I don't want to see it all. I'm overwhelmed by so much of it all. I will just fold my hands and look away. Simply Forget about it. Some of us resign ourselves in that very way. Uh, a second thing that we do is we put on blinders and we just get busy. Verses 6 and 7, the striving, the toil, just working and working and working and all of our busyness puts blinders on. But Solomon says this. He says there's a third way and there's a better way. Better than being the idle man who falls into life of ease and indulgence. Better than being the industrious man or person who just goes about with busy blinders on. There's a third way. Look at verse 7 through 12. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all of his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks. For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Y'all, I sat down with a man who's lost his family, but his wealth is growing. And this is the very thing he said to me this week. And he said it with tremendous amount of pain and regret. Vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no other to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A three, four, three-fold cord is not quickly broken. He goes one, two, three in this passage. And solitary one is a lonely number. Uno is no way 
for us to live and understand life and to live and move and have our being. Here he says, that third way is what some of you know. The third way is what some of us, I I pray, will find and discover in this very church family. That in this world, there's great problems. In our very own neighborhood, there's a lot of problems. And I'm not even talking about potholes and bold water alerts. But we will find the weight of this world will crush us without the experience of other people. Two are better than one. Solomon said that some 2,500 years ago. And some of us have it on coffee cups and keychains and inscribed in something very important around our home and office. Great words, huh? Two are better than one. I've quoted that, this passage at weddings, but it's not a wedding passage per se. This isn't uh, what some of us want to think of in terms of romantic or sexual. This is a different culture, a passionate culture, where literally uh, they lived in more primitive times and the warmth and the fellowship It it means a little more than what it might uh, mean to you and I as it strikes us today in in our modern world with all of our conveniences. He says there's four real benefits. First, uh, I'm going to go old school preacher on you. They're all going to start with the same letter. You ready? I don't do this often. Will you give me this just just one time? Uh, The first is in our our working. He says in verse 9 that... When two work, what, what does he promise? That there's a better reward on their labor. You know this to be true, don't you? What, whatever work it is, if it's yard work or mission trips or service projects or ministry in the church, you, you always get more done. You always can get more done if you've got somebody working alongside of you. Not long after we moved uh, to Mississippi, for me it was back to Mississippi, uh, more than a decade ago, we, we rented a house just for a few months and then we moved into a more permanent home. And I remember calling some guys and nine guys showed up to help us move. I rented, unbeknownst to me, a 1970-something U-Haul truck. It was like a five-speed and had this column thing and it was just, it shouldn't have been rented to anybody, but they gave the truck to me at a discount. I took it, I had nine guys meet me. And what could have been just an exhausting, miserable, full day of pain was just a few hours with us working together. And there was a few hours of laughter. I remember uh, connecting with some of these guys. They were uh, new friends of mine, but those friendships for some of them, some of us were growing deeper. And they were talking about our transition uh, back to Mississippi. And they were talking about hunting. They were going somewhere to throw something down. Uh, on the ground. And I just thought, man, hunting, I I mean, I'm all for you guys hunting. I've just never been a big hunter. I I told him it just doesn't seem fair, right? I mean, if if you wanted to make it fair, you would go out into the woods, take off all your clothes, get naked and run around and catch an animal, you know, and and kill it with your teeth, with your own claws, right? That'd be fair. I mean, I don't get it. You, 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 you let these animals feed all year round. And then they come out for one time to feed, you pop them and it's done, right? And they were telling me, man, you're, you're back in the South. You got to go hunting with us. And the, the, I remember the laughter of that day. And I remember thinking, man, it's good to get some good old Southern hospitality. It's good to get back home and get to my roots. And, and I did drop a buck with one of those guys a few years later. But man, people, the, the work that can be done if we work together. Man, let's dream as a church. And I pray that you're in a small group or if you're not. And and if you are in a small group, I pray that you'll go deeper as you come around each other 
to meet needs. And sometimes people move, don't they? That's when I don't answer my phone or email, but sometimes people do move. And he says, for, not just in your, in your working, but in your, in your walking. If one falls, there'll be a person there to lift him up. I remember one time speaking at a Campus Crusade conference years ago, and I was flying through uh, St. Louis, Missouri, and I was at this small commuter airport, and I was walking, I was getting out, um, to head, getting out of the rental to go check it in, and there was a, it was in February, there was a patch of ice. And I remember walking, and I, st- I stepped on this patch of ice, and man, I mean, I just feet up high, head to the ground, suitcase, backpack, fell. And what's the first thing that goes through your mind when that happens? Did anybody see me, right? Did anybody see me? And secondly, you think, am I hurt? Can can I get up? And I don't know how often you or I fall. Maybe only our elderly elderly in the room that this is a a real, real issue. But back in ancient Palestine, the roads were much more troubled. They weren't paved. They, They were uneven. There were hidden things, and there was a a likelihood that you could fall. And here the preacher is saying, man, life is better. Life is better when when it gets hard to have somebody. When you're working and in in your walking, and we go on to say, we go on to see him say, but woe is him who's alone when he falls and he doesn't have another uh, to lift him up. The the third thing is warmth right here uh, in verse 11. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone. Uh, It's hard to talk about being cold and frigid and icy, right? It's hard to talk about these things in uh, September in Mississippi, right? After the August and the summer we've had, right? Any Yankees in the room? We're just going to call you what you are, right? Any, anybody from the North, just say, just raise your hand. You got some Northern folks. Okay. You can feel this, right? You, you know, uh, and it's interesting, right? That no one uh, retires from Florida to North Dakota, right? It's always the other way around. So I want to welcome people to Mississippi from the North. But you know that it can be harsh uh, in the wintertime. When I was a kid, my family and I, we moved several different places. They, they kept moving, and I kept finding them. And we, we settled one time for a couple of years out in the panhandle of Texas. If you're a George Strait fan, we lived in a little town named Pampa, Texas, right outside of Amarillo. And that's in the panhandle. It's almost in Colorado. And this was way back when, when I was a little boy. We lived literally in a little pink house. Long before John Cougar Mellencamp made that line famous, we lived, for whatever reason, my parents had very bad judgment, and we lived in a little pink house in Pampa, Texas. It was all uphill from there, I believe. But there we were in this little pink house, and I remember in the summertime there were these dust storms, and I remember in the wintertime there were blizzards, and we did not, I'm dating myself, we did not have the luxury of Doppler weather radar. There was no weather channel. There's very limited weather on the local news. The forecasting models were very ancient. And we got trapped in a blizzard and we didn't have heat and it took us days to even get out and get to a store. I have memories, got a few pictures of this. But I remember my family and I, we, we got desperate. We weren't a terribly affectionate family, but we got pretty desperate and we just were in the same room snuggling together. Are you guys snugglers? Do you like, I, honestly, I like to snuggle. Maybe that's what it originated from. Uh, but I love, I love to snuggle. I'll need some hugs after the sermon today, I think. But I, Solomon is saying, man, it's so much better because there are winter seasons in life. There's, a, there's frigid air 
and you need people. So in your working and in your walking, that is when you fall, and in the warming of life, there's a benefit. And also in the watching. I stretch this one to make it happen in the alliteration. Verse 12, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. He adds to the number, a three-four cold is not quickly broken. You need someone to have your back. Let me use two cliches real quick. You need someone to watch your back. And Solomon, another cliche here is safety in numbers, right? I heard uh, this past week that Woody Harrelson was in Jackson, even in Fonder. Is that true? Did anybody verify that? And then I heard Liam Nielsen was here in Fonder. Is that true? And I remember that night I was at small group. I was like, Liam Nielsen, the taken guy, is in Fondren? Like my daughter, my 13-year-old daughter can just walk out on the street. She's safe. She can just walk around. Walk, I'm, I'm good with that, right? Just kind of walk to McDade's, go back, no big deal. Go get a burger at Babaloo. Liam Nielsen is here. I'll be, I'll be fine. You'll be fine. But we do, we really do need someone. There is safety in numbers. Now, I see these four W's that I presented to you from Ecclesiastes 4, 7 to 12. And I think I asked two questions. The first is, do we not teach this? Do we not teach this? I'm going to answer that. I really think as a church and the church today, I think we, I think we beat this to death. But the more important question is this one. Why do so few have real deep friendships? Why so few really have people that can walk with them? I want to give you a few from this very text that he writes. The first is it's envy. It's envy. It's been referred to as the green-eyed monster. I've got a friend, Justin, who's wanted to see Derek Jeter play one of his last games, Yankees versus Boston Red Sox. He's up in Boston now. There's that green monster in Fenway Park that all you baseball fans know about. You don't have to be a baseball fan to know about it. This giant green wall. And it's been made analogous that envy is that green-eyed monster. It's sneaky and subtle and very subversive. Now, we oftentimes confuse envy with jealousy or with coveting. We just sang a moment ago about God being a jealous God. And that very song, I didn't know that was going to happen today, but that very song can teach us a little bit of the difference in that. Envy is, is wanting something that you don't have. The, a jealous God, it, never does the scripture say that God is an envious God. Because he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. You've been bought with a price. He owns me. He owns you. We are his prized possession. God is not an envious God, but he's a jealous God. He wants to keep you. He wants to keep me. He wants to keep us in his fold. And he's a jealous God. And that's a good thing. Praise God that he's a jealous God. That ought to light a fire and motivation in us not to chase after other idols. The things that will hurt us to go down a bad path. But God is not an envious God. And envy in every way is ugly. Are you guys, do you guys ever just when you're alone and you're just thinking those thoughts that you think and you, there's just somebody and you see them fall and you secretly celebrate it. They, they, they're better looking than you, but they just put on a 15 pounds or, or they got a new car and somebody dinged their door and you just find yourself celebrating quietly in their success. Have you ever done that? Yeah, me neither, but I've read about it. I've heard that people actually do that, right? Do you, do you uh, 
when someone, do you, do you hold a grudge when someone does something successful? Here's what Paul said about envy in 1 Timothy. Chapter 6 and verse 4, they are conceited, understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result what? In envy, strife, malicious talk, and evil suspicions. The word envy is always, as it here is here in 1 Timothy, Colossians 3, and Ephesians 4, it's just never mentioned in a good light. Proverbs 14 and verse 20. The poor are shunned even by their neighbors, but the rich have many friends. That wasn't the verse we were looking for, but that's a good verse. And it talks a little bit about what we were talking about today. And, and there is a proverb that talks about the heart that envies as a heart that is consumed. It is not at rest. There is no peace. When you are wishing that other people fail, when you are quietly celebrating in their lack of success, when you want something that they've got, you can in no way be at peace. As I thought about it prayerfully this morning, I thought, you know, this, uh, the opposite of envy in many ways is, is peace, it's contentment. And the picture that God brought to my mind was, was walking out maybe into, into a Colorado air in the beauty, beautiful alpine western part of the United States and seeing a mountain stream and kneeling down to that mountain stream and dipping down and with your hands getting a cool, crisp cup of water cupping it with your hands and bringing it up to drink and giving you just what you need. As you savor the beauty, as you satiate your thirst, as you enjoy that, your heart is at peace. But envy is the one who looks over their shoulder, who looks at others, who constantly has to compare themselves. And envy will eat you up. Another thing that Solomon gives us beyond uh, envy in this passage is laziness. Verse 5, I won't talk about this long, but in verse 5, he says it's the folding of the hands. And what's the promise there? He says, again, using some exaggeration, he says they'll eat their own flesh. Uh, lazy people suck the life out of you. Lazy people want other people to feed them. Have you noticed that some people, no matter where they go, they can't find friendship? And lazy people are good at fault-finding and blame shifting, and blaming everybody but themselves. And the reason we don't have the warmth and the help and people to watch our back and to help us, to pull us up when, when we fall down and give us a greater reward, a return on investment in our work, is because of envy and because of laziness. We're just not willing to work. And I thought, let me talk to uh, marriages in the room, future marriages. Man, when I got married, I thought I am enough for her. I mean, she got to marry me, and I am a minister and a really marvelous guy. And I did things when we were dating. I wrote poems, and I sang songs. And, man, I just, I think in some ways I knocked it out of the park. I had to because we dated long distance, coast to coast. And I thought, I am enough, and it didn't take long for me to realize I am not enough. Intimacy requires work. No one gets it easy. It is not natural. It requires a lot of effort. It requires doing things that you don't want to do to serve another person. And the lazy person doesn't do that. The lazy person expects it to come to him or her 
and they just fall back. And he's saying here in this wise literature, he's saying, you'll be left alone and you'll be eating your own flesh. No one to feed or to feed you. You'll, be, you'll devour yourself because of your laziness. Envy is a culprit of real deal, deep friendships. So is just this idea of being lazy. Thirdly, dissatisfaction. Look at verses six and seven. He says, "What I, the striving after the wind, no matter what I got, I wasn't satisfied. No amount of riches could bring it to me. Just a, a deep dissatisfaction. Now, you don't have to be uber rich or ultra successful to relate to Solomon. I think we all can, no matter what classification we are in. I think of so many arenas in my life. I remember when our firstborn was born and I used to think, man, I can't wait for him to say dada. I can't wait for him to crawl. I can't wait for him to talk. I can't wait for him to walk and quote Shakespeare and Chaucer and War and Peace. I can't wait for him to do, reach all these milestones. I just can't wait for it. And then that second child comes along. And I remember one night coming into a, a dark room with just a nightlight and I was trying to sneak in without any noise and the, the room was cluttered with toys that were constantly trying to strike up a conversation with me. And I remember just kind of walking through and I had this moment of just thinking, I can wait. I really, I really can wait. Because I was getting a snippet, of an early lesson that it happens really fast and it, it happens too fast, doesn't it? And the dissatisfied person is always striving, always chasing after the wind, always wanting to get to the next thing. And man, I was listening to Alan Jackson yesterday, turned up the music, Remember When. You know that song, Remember When? Any of you, man, I get goosebumps. And I think, man, remember when, remember back then. But if you remember back then, you wanted now. And it's just a perpetual dissatisfaction. And we live in what I call an LCD, ADD, technology-oriented society. And we do crazy things because of our smartphones. I, I joke that we need something on a smartphone called relationship mode because we do crazy things with these phones, crazy things like text your friends when you're with your spouse or text your spouse when you're with your friends or check social media when you're with a real person in a three-dimensional world. And we're always just, there's just something out there. And our dissatisfaction it prevents us from seeing this two and three are better than one. And the last thing he mentions is our work. The success. Verse seven, seven B, I guess you could say. But Solomon, man, he got after it. He, he was striving to be successful, to give himself everything that he needed. A, a woman this week sent me a Wall Street Journal article uh, it asks the question, uh, what really makes us happy? Where is the greatest happiness? And the article, I can reduce it by saying, with a lot of great research from reputable data, looking at statistics and anecdotal evidence and talking to uh, smart people, it concludes that our happiness is not found in the acquiring of things, but ultimately in the relationships with people. You see, 2,500 plus years ago, Solomon is right. Without people. It's just chasing after the wind. There's still the oppression. There's still the hard stuff. But can we share life together? For a number of years, I worked in campus ministry. Love our college students. Got to be with them 
this week, Thursday night. Love college students. For a bunch of years, we, we minister to college students. And, and not once, I'm going to be specific, maybe talking to some dads in the room, relating it to our daughters. Let's be that specific. But I've, I've never once talked to a college girl, my wife and I both, we've never talked to a college girl and she said something like, well, my dad, my dad doesn't love me. My dad hates me. I got a, I got a, I got a bad car. I'm driving a 74 Ford Pinto. My dad just hates me. Never, I've never heard that. But we've met some young ladies who drove $45,000, $50,000 cars and had a skewed understanding of their value. And when we preach Ecclesiastes, we got to say this. When Solomon talks about the primacy, the priority of relationships, work as envy, as laziness, as dissatisfaction can get in our way. And if it's you today, if you're in that season, maybe let this be the day. Let this be a wake-up call for you. Let some people in this church family come around you who won't just be the great judge in your life, but can, can be an attorney for you. They can speak on your behalf and come around you and share with you their own lessons. I pray Titus 2 is more and more true in our church, that the younger men will, will be blessed and mentored by the older men, and the younger women, according to Titus 2, will be blessed and mentored by the older women. And like Solomon, we can share some of these valuable, valuable lessons. Let's pray. God, there's probably nobody in this house this morning who would disagree with the truth that two are better than one, that three could be even stronger. That we fall down and we get chilled, we, we freeze, we fail. We, we accomplish little, our lives are meager without without love, without loving and being loved. And we're, we're hearty in our understanding of that. We, we, we raise our hands and we pledge that it's true, but yet so few of us, so few of us are experiencing the deep abiding relationships. And God, I would pray now for the hearts that are racked with envy now. Those of us, and it's so easy, all of us are prone to not coming to the mountain stream, not receiving the drink, not, not receiving, Jesus, your words in John 7, that if any of us are thirsty, we can come to the, to the living waters. But we go, as the prophet Jeremiah would say, to broken cisterns. We, we, we look in other places to drink and to be refreshed, and we, we, we find ourselves always looking over the fence, always looking over our shoulder at what other people have. God, I pray that as we sing today, as we begin to close this service, as we partake in this very sacred moment of remembering your body given for us, your, your blood shed for us. God, it's my prayer that you would work in our hearts as we, we worship you. 
And God, I pray today that this has been no time wasted for anyone, that you would allow this great chunk of Scripture to bypass our defenses and to comfort us in ways that we needed and also to prod us, to provoke us in other ways as well. Lord, I know in my life when envy takes root and takes over, that I have a scarcity mindset. It's not an abundance. It's a scarcity and it's really at the core. I'm wondering if I can trust you. God, lead us. Lead us with hearts more open to what you want to do. Lord, I thank you that we can gather for worship and we can acknowledge as we read the scripture. We don't pull it out of the Bible. We don't look past it. We see, we see an ancient writer who has problems with oppression. Those who are oppressed in their tears and those who are the oppressors with their lack of comfort. And we now remember as we come to the table, we remember the gospel message. The one who set the captives free and who sets us free today. The one who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God. Receive our worship. Jesus, we pray. Would you stand? And we're going to have some leaders make their way forward uh, throughout our room. I think even in the balcony and four corners around our worship center with some ushers uh, providing some leadership. Jesus taught in the Gospels and Paul repeated in Corinthians that we are to do this in remembrance of what God has done for us. He said, don't do this in an unworthy way as some in Corinth brought sickness onto themselves because of of doing this without uh, doing it in an unworthy way without understanding the essence of the gospel and we, we let you know this morning that your worthiness is found in Jesus alone when you take a step forward to these ordinary elements you are saying this symbolizes something that Jesus did and he makes me worthy whatever dissatisfaction whatever uh, workaholism whatever laziness whatever envy that you and I have in our hearts whatever sin it is his grace is greater and we're able to say that today as we come to the elements this do in remembrance of you i'm not good at times to give instructions for our visitors today but if you want to take communion we invite you to join with us as we do so you'll you'll see a piece of bread uh, take that piece of bread just grab the corner of it and there's a, you dip that other corner into the juice. And someone will be there to say, this is Christ's body given for you. This is Christ's blood shed for you. And you worship. Worship Him in this moment. Let's do so. Thank you.